One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. <laughs> but, but surprisingly for me, you know, I've done the stats. Uh, Alistair Aird, uh, who uh, writes some great Rangers books, he did the editing of my book, and Alistair came up with the stats, and I, I played 177 times for Rangers, so I'm proud of that. 177 times. I, I, I hadn't get injured and get various illnesses. I'd probably played, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 maybe more. Uh, but, you know, unbelievable experience playing at Rangers. That's a thing that... Um... It's great when you hear players that appreciate it, and I think tens of thousands that go to every game, and the hundreds of thousands, and possibly millions around the world um, that have never been that fortunate to do it once. Yep, would be incredible. Yep. Uh, I, I mean, I played a, a charity game in an empty Ibrox, <laughs> and felt as if I'd won the World Cup, uh, and uh, we got a penalty, and Charlie Miller was playing centre forward with me, and before he'd even landed, he got put up there. I took the ball and put it in the penalty spot and just looked <laughs> to me and I thought, you've done this before, I've never. Um, and I thought when I put it in. <laughs> I didn't use the Tommy Gemmell no, uh, advice. No. I, I used the Craig Houston advice. I think I took about four penalties in my life. I thought I'll just play sat on the inside, uh, inside the right-hand post. But, you know, so to actually have done it once, it's, it's, it's beyond belief in the, the wildest dreams for so many people. We've done it over 170 times. It's incredible. And I think, you're, that team, 81-86, it's a soft spot maybe because it was my first... I'd been in scene for Saif playing and Colin Jackson playing and all these guys and, and they all seem to get their testimonials about the same time and then the whole team changed. Yep. And I've got memories of them playing. I can distinctly remember going to Ibrox and seeing these guys and my dad telling me all these stories about how great they were and winning European Cup winners' cups and stuff. But you, John McDonald, Ali Dawson, uh, Jim Bett, Peter McCloy... These were, that was my Rangers team. Aye, aye. And, and I think people go on, because what happened in 86, then we started, you know, the, the whole thing just kicked kicked right on. And it was tough being a Rangers fan then because there was years where we didn't qualify for Europe. And I remember winning uh, the Skull Cup and it was a massive thing for me because it was the first time I'd seen Rangers lift a trophy that yeah. I can remember. Um, and I, and I, I when you hear people being a bit disingenuous to that team, always gets my back up because you, you round off that team 
And the quality in that team oh, it was phenomenal. And Bobby Russell, if Bobby Russell probably didn't play at Rangers at the same time as Cooper, I think people would hold Bobby Russell in the same esteem as we hold David Cooper. Uh, yeah. now, I mean, David Cooper's everybody loves David Cooper, but Bobby Russell was a sublime football oh, player, brilliant player, brilliant, and a great guy. And, and I think the thing is that, um, you know, they had a telepathic understanding. And um, after the Aberdeen game, when I'd played a bit part because I'd, you know, almost encroached in their party. Um, the Monday, uh, Coop said to me, ah, you get lucky on Saturday. <laughs> I said, all right. And Coop and I got on really well. You know, uh, unbelievable sense of humour. And he said, right, stay back after training. So we were at the Albion, you know, uh, where the car park is now, and uh, got a couple of balls. And him and Bobby, he says, watch this. And him and Bobby, you know, while it was, I thought it was telepathic and the fans thought it was telepathic, they, they worked on it. And basically what happened was Coop would get the ball and he would drag it inside and Bobby would make a run. Coop would reverse pass it in. And then he said to me, right, you come in. And I was like, and I became part of it for, for a short time. And I thought, genius. The two of them were geniuses. Um, very natural players, but like every player that gets to the top of their game, it's about the work you do. I remember that, and I took um, that lesson uh, with Robert Pritz. Him and I used to stay back after training, and I remember Coisty had just joined the club, and we didn't know much about him. Uh, and we were playing Celtic on the Saturday at Parkhead, and uh, we Pritzy and I said, "Right, well, let's let's work something out." and Said right, right, Pritz. If we got a free kick uh, in the middle of the park, I'll get down the the line. Just play it into me, right? So he said, right, okay. So I go back after we we practiced that a few times, and then um, went into the dressing room, and I said to Coisty, I said, Coisty, see if I ever, if I get to the if I ever probably <laughs> if I get to the the dead ball line. Uh, where do you want the ball? And he says, uh, oh, just the corner of the six-yard box. He says, no score. I went, well, that's confidence, right? And he hadn't played a game at that stage. I played a couple, but... Um, so we get to Parkhead. Uh, Roy Aiken, Clark, or Sandy Clark, just inside their half in the mid. So I look at Pritzi, he looks at me. I start running, and he plays the ball. Perfect. I just get it just before it gets to the dead ball line. And I play it back to the six-yard corner. Coisty scores. 27 seconds. It was the fastest goal between Rangers Celtic ever. Uh, and Coisty said, ah, good pass. I said, just think if we practice that, Coisty. <laughs> we could become good at that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, it was, it was uh, as I say, I'm a bit precious about that, that team uh, and that era. Uh, and what happened next was was crazy. I mean, I knew expected that. See, see, one of the things, Greg, I would say to you was like, see the the players at that time. They were all Rangers supporters. They were brought up as Rangers supporters. So they stood in the terrace. I stood in the terrace opposite um, the tunnel. That's where my dad used to take me. And Mark and a uh, heroes at the time: John Gregg, Dave Smith, uh, Willie Johnston, uh, Colin Steen. But my favourite was Andy Penman. I loved Andy Penman, and I played against him late in my career, um, just because he's you know the way he went about the 
you know, in the midfield, you know, just he always looked as if he was in control of things. So I understood, and all those players understood what it was like to stand in the terrace and then support your team. Uh, so that synergy, I think, between the players and the, the fans existed. Uh, I was fortunate in my first two years that I got over 100 player of the years. Uh, and after the first season, what I did was I went to every club, every supporters club, every fans club to collect it. Sometimes three in a night, you know, travel from, you know, Ayrshire to um, Lanarkshire to Midlothian uh, and spend some time there. So I did that and I collected everyone. The, the, the following season, I get more, wow. right? And Coop said to me, ah, you only get them because you go to them. <laughs> he said... I should be the player. I said, no, no, <laughs> you know, you'll turn up. <laughs> you know, you'll turn up. So that's what I did. So I think in, in writing this book, what I want to do is re, re almost like re-engage with that because um, I was treated incredibly well uh, with the Rangers fans. And, you know, what I, I want to do is, is reach out to Rangers fans at their clubs and say, look, if you fancy me coming along, talking a lot of nonsense about, about the days at Rangers and what it, what it means, uh, and bring my books, then I'd, I'd be great to do that. Um, and because I, I, you know, I can remember going to Elgin, you know, supporters club at Elgin, you know, four and a half, five hours travelling up, and then the next night going to Inverness to a Rangers uh, fans group, and then the following night going to Kirkubri, you know, to Rangers supporters clubs. So that's what it means. That's what it meant to me to be be part of it because the fans are part of it and it's a big, big thing between clubs and I think too often they tend to forget that, you know, because it really, it means a lot to the fans, but it means a lot to the players because you're always treated unbelievably. I think as a fan, um, <clears throat> you always know when a player's trying. There's no hiding in a football park. There's 50,000 people watching 22 people, but out of the 22, you're probably watching the one in the ball and the ones in a 10-yard radius. So you might be only watching three or four at the same time. And my early memories of you is it's just a red hair. That was it. <laughs> this guy turned up for Fartic Thistle and he started playing right back. And uh, I always felt there was a, there was graft there. There was an honesty there. Um, and, I, I, and I think that's fair to say about a lot of your teammates at that time. Uh, there was, no. was honesty and getting graft. But see what you're saying about I think for a lot of people, if you're a Rangers fan, you put on that jersey, you, the hope is that you're going to get an extra 10, 20, 30% of effort because it means more than playing for all due respect this or, yeah. or Dundee. But is that always the case? Or can it sometimes be a negative with some players? Would, and that, that is just a mentality thing that, that might be a, a negative for them being a bear and, you know, having to go and try too much? Well, I think, uh, I think a lot of players come to the club and don't realise how big it is. <laughs> and what's required, you know, um, as you say, um, the big thing is you know, the fans giving it hundred percent in every game, and that was something I I uh, wanted to do because, <coughs> excuse me, after my kidney removal, one of the things I thought about was like, you know, how many games are you going to play? Uh, and what I decided to do was play each game as if it was my last, because one day I was going to be right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I, um, I made it from my, from my soul, really, to say, I'm going to go out and from the start of the game to the finish, 
I'm going to um, play to a certain level. I'm going to, uh, you know, come off the park and 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 if realise that I've given 100% to, to the club. It'll be up to others that maybe add a wee bit of magic to, to make his win. Um, but to be perfectly honest, as, as a footballer, you know, whilst uh, I played for Rangers and I grew up a Rangers supporter, um, it was special, but it was also special playing for other clubs. I played for seven clubs in total uh, and I enjoyed playing for the clubs. I enjoyed, I, I became almost like a supporter of that club. Uh, I wanted the club to win. I wanted the, the fans. I wanted to have a relationship with the fans. I wanted the fans to say, by the way, that guy gets stuck in. Because that's what it's about, you know. And I think, you know, too many players don't quite understand that and realise that. And, and and as I say, the you know, the bigger the club you go to, you realise that the, the pressure and the, um, you know, the, basically the thing that makes you win um and the expectations managing expectations uh is a big thing and a lot of players can't manage that expectation um they go out and play and then um you know they don't play at the top of their game because you know i think a lot is to do with attitude um and you know if you look at rangers for example they've gone through a wee bit of a transitional period um the new manager came in I'm sure we'll give players that have maybe not performed the chance. But what what happens when new managers come in? Some players suddenly realise, well, maybe I've not been performing as, as well as I can be, or maybe my attitude's not been right. The manager will sort that and get them focused and get them playing. And you can find that uh, when a new manager come in, players that maybe fans have discounted suddenly become good players, suddenly give... But that's a lot of that's to do with attitude because I think all the players that Rangers have signed have got a lot of a lot of skill. They've got uh, they're good players, but it might be just the attitude, isn't it? Right? And a new manager can change that just by getting a word in their ear, an arm round them. Some players need an arm round them. Some players need to be told what they do in a park, what will be success for them because um, the good teams that I've played in. The players understood as soon as they went on the park, they understood what their role was within the, the team and how if they performed that role to the best of their ability uh, throughout the team, success would come. And I think that's the key to it. I think that um, looking at it from the side, I think maybe um, sort of players maybe that have come in, they've been used to playing for teams that going in and out of games, you know, they maybe go in and, you know, play for 10, 15 minutes and, and because of the type of football or maybe the leagues they've been playing in, they can take a, a rest for 10, 15 minutes. At Rangers, as soon as you go in that park, you can take a rest. You're at it from the first minute to the last minute. Uh, and I think that that's maybe uh, a transition period uh, that we're going into now. And that's, that's I think, that... Uh, you know, there are there are many examples of um, that I've had in, in, in twenty years as a as a professional uh, of players who've maybe not uh, endeared themselves to the um, to the supporters, but suddenly they, something changes in the way they play, and the supporters say, "By the way, what a player that is! He's changed." 
I'll give you an example of that. Um, I played with Gordon Strachan at Dundee, and Gordon Strachan was an unbelievable player. Low centre of gravity, great attitude, um, was brilliant. And you knew you could give him the ball and he'd keep it. When he went to Aberdeen, something happened. I don't know what it was when he first went there. And I remember uh, making, uh, probably, it wasn't even my day, it was after the Dundee United game, but we went, Patrick Thistle went to Aberdeen to play Aberdeen and um, we're doing the warm up. Uh, and I said, Strax, how are you doing? They went, oh, murder, murder. I says, what do you mean? He says, oh, the fans hate me here. I said, oh, come on. I said, I've I played with you for a number of years. I know exactly what you can do. I says, and one of the things, your attitude's always right. And he said, no, he says, they hate me. Right? So Aberdeen took kick off and played, get paid, played to Gordon Stratton. Ooh. Right? Man, Everybody I'm... was booing. And I'm thinking, you're right, wee man. And then suddenly became... This legend. legend there. So you can turn it around. So I think, you know, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm relating, relating to Rangers in the, the current uh, position, I think players, there are good players there. If they give the right attitude and they get the manager to, to get the best out of them, I think they might come good. That's, that's what I think. Um, if they don't come good, then... It's never going to happen. You need to go through a transition. But I think with Rangers as well, you know, having worked, you know, as an executive level at, at clubs, um, the, the last thing you want is a manager coming in and having to clear the place out again because that sets a club back two, three years. Well, and that's that's the balance at the moment. Aye, and, it, and it's not just the, the dressing room change. The financial costs, you know. Absolutely. Um, you... you, you Obviously, then Duncan Marlott have already spoke about that in your uh, your time there with Tommy and um, the, the penalty, Tommy Gemmel <laughs> penalty, um, and then obviously you moved into the boardroom and the business side of football. But there was one story in there that I think is very topical. It's because of what's happening in the Rangers just now. And it was it was uh, when Alec Ray was a manager of Dundee. Yep. yep. And uh, you had to sack him, but you'd, reading between the lines, it's as if you you weren't happy with that and. You maybe thought one it was a, the wrong decision, but you were still professional enough to just go and deal with it because the decision's been made. Your role dictates you do it, or yeah. maybe it wasn't. You were maybe just shoved into that with somebody that didn't want to do it. Was maybe how I read it. But could you talk about that that time at Dundee and what happened there? Yeah, well, I believe that um, I spoke about that that uh, synergy between a club from top to bottom. Unless you, there's different languages through a football club. There's the boardroom language, which is strategic and, you know, uh, making sure that they don't lose money, they get money in and all that kind of thing. Uh, but they still want a good team in the park. You've got the, the football side of it, where it's like short term, let's let's win on Saturday, let's get our injuries back. If we sign this player, we might, you know, improve the team during the transfer window. Um, and then you've got the fans, you know, they want to mirror what the, the dressing room is doing about winning every game. Um, but I understood that language at clubs because I played football. Uh, I could talk to the board. I'd, I'd also had a, a vast experience in business. Uh, I was at Tenants for 12 years, an un unbelievable education in business, uh, and then had my own pub company. Uh, so I knew business and I knew every aspect of the financial, you know, strategic. 
So, but I was at uh, Kilmarnock, and first of all, and uh, basically the boardroom, I was a football guy, right? So I knew the language of the, the dressing room. And what was happening was Kilmarnock, believe it or not, they were third or fourth in the league. And um, when the director said, oh, I've been beating the last couple of games, I think we should get rid of the manager. And it was Jim Jeffries and Billy Brown who had taken a, we'd taken a million pounds out of the budget and they were performing miracles. Two great guys that conscientious. And uh, the owner of the club uh, said, we brought Dave McKinnon in for his business acumen, but also his football acumen. What do you think the worst mistake we'll ever make? I said, the manager's done absolutely brilliant. He's got, you know, 12 injuries. Uh, they're all coming out. I spoke to the physio. They're coming back in. We'll get back in and, and we'll end up fourth in the league. Uh, the owner, Jamie Moffat, says, right, Davey, you're the football guy. I'll take that on board. Now, if there was not a football voice in there, they would have sacked Jim Jeffries and it would have been the worst move they made. It was a similar thing at Dundee. What happened at Dundee was um, I was part of a four-man board. There was a fans representative, George Knight, who was brilliant, understood exactly what, what uh, you know, we could say to the fans and what we couldn't say. I used to go to a fans meeting every month and I used to give it from the football perspective. Um, with, um, Chairman Bob Rannan, um I was financial uh, director Ian Bodie and me and we should have uh, agreed that we'd a quarter vote if you like uh, on decisions uh, but ultimately I'd, I, I was supposed to have a football decision but basically what happened we were beaten uh, only I think we were only maybe five six points five points off the top of the league it was a lot of players injured at Dundee Alec Ray was doing a great job and I got a phone call on the Sunday because they were all from the Dundee area. Oh, we had a meeting after the game and the uh, three years wanting to get rid of the manager. And I said, it's the worst move you can ever make. I said, he's got injuries similar to what happened to Jim Jeffries. Uh, I said, so this is not a fo football decision that I agree with. Uh, and from a football perspective, I don't agree with it. And what they said was, well, it's a 3 to 1 vote, so you're voted out. And I went up to Dundee. I was told to go up to Dundee and sack Alec. Uh, and I brought Alec into the club and he was doing very, very well, him and Davy Farrell. And um, I walked up to Dundee and uh, into the solicitor's office uh, and a Dundee United director was sitting, John Bennett, who was a property guy, really good guy. But basically what happened is he had arranged to buy the stadium from the club because there was a debt there. And the bank, it was the banking issues of 2008, Banks were going out of business. The Royal Bank of Scotland were pulling in every debt they could. So they, they'd asked for um, Dundee. There was, I think there was a £3 million loan against the stadium. And they would write that off for £500,000. That was that was a strange thing that were going on at that time. And um, John Bennett agreed to to fund that and buy the pitch, buy the stadium. And I, I didn't agree with that. And then John gave me a, an email and said, there you go. So John made the decision to get rid of the manager because he was going to buy the club and he didn't want Alec Ray being the manager. And I said, absolutely outrageous. And they said, if you looked at point five, I looked at point five and it says, David McKinnon to resign as chief executive and um, a Dundee United board member come in as the chief executive. And I just said, outrageous. Now, as I was leaving, 
some people try and look after their themselves, and I just told them to stuff it. I wasn't doing it, but you know that again, that having to do that professional job, I was getting paid, and so I, I went up and sacked Alec Ray, and I couldn't tell Alec exactly why it was, and he was quite rightly raging. Uh, but I made the decision I was leaving the club anyway. I just if it's any consolation, he knows now. I told uh, him. Oh, you've told him since. Because uh, uh, I'd, I'd said to him uh, the weekend, I said, I just I, came up in the book. <laughs> no, uh, so where did you get the book? I told uh, him. Um, I, I phoned Alec because what I wanted to do is I didn't want him reading it about it in the papers. Yeah. Uh, and it was a personal thing uh, that I had no control over. Uh, and it was the wrong decision. And, and what I said to the three board members when I left, I said, um, you're making a terrible decision here. I said, uh, we're, we're on track with a three-year plan. Uh, we'll get promoted to the Premier League. That's the objective. The fans understood it. Everyone at the club. So we were perfectly aligned. Uh, and we knew what the objective was. And we would have got promoted. Uh, but they weren't for it. And, and I said to the board, you'll end up with administration again. Because I'd, I'd joined the club after administration took a significant amount of the wages to get back on track. I had a three-year plan that the board agreed and we were working to it and we ripped up the plan and started. they started buying players in. You know, Lee Griffiths, they signed for 150 grand. Uh, Gary Harkins from Thistle for 100,000. Where was this money coming from? Because they couldn't have an overdraft. So I knew that, but they had, you know, uh, someone said they were going to invest money into the club and they were going to fund it. And that person disappeared at the, the tail end, and they were left with a huge wage bill. They, they didn't have an overdraft. The bank wouldn't allow them an overdraft. They couldn't pay for things, so they went in the administration again. And that was so sad for me looking in the sidelines, but I saw it coming. So I talked yeah. about that uh, in the book to a certain extent. But it was it was great for me to actually phone yeah, Alec right. and phone Davy Farrell and say to them, "Look, I'm giving you a heads up on this. Here's the reason." It was nothing to do with your ability or how you perform. That's the reason. Can he change the past? But what I want you to do is make sure that you hear it from me rather than read it in the papers. Fair play. I, um, I know, Alec, and there, there, there's a story from Christmas time. I was taking the piss out of him, to be honest with you. But when I tell you the story, you realise that, that in itself will tell you how good a coach Alec is. It's a great coach, great, great manager. I was going down to uh, take my girlfriend as a, a wee boy down to Windsor in Legoland uh, between Christmas and New Year. And we Alec was at Redden at the time. Uh -huh. So I've texted them and we actually booked a hotel in Redden uh, to stay in. And they were playing Swansea that night. So the wee man got us a couple of tickets for in the players' lounge and he came in after the game and he said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I says, well, we're going to, and it was like, oh, and about lunchtime or something. He says, well, see if you want, I'll come in to train. I'm going into training about half eight. If you want to come in, I'll, I'll show you in the, uh, right. the, the, the complex. Outstanding. Outstanding. He's uh, a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant guy. Like. Well, when he gets there, we're walking through and he was, he's introducing me, everybody in the building. And he says, I in, she'll be in half an hour or so, right? So Paul Lynch, thinking, oh, I've met some football players in my time. You're a proper, <laughs> proper football player. So he introduced them. They'd, they'd won that night. And he says, I, Alex says, you're a lucky charm. He says, do you fancy coming to Norwich on Thursday with could David and our three points? And I said, Paul, can I ask you one question? He says, how is it? I says, right, you played for West Ham, Liverpool, Man United, Inter Milan. You were the first black captain of your nation. 
you've played with some proper football players through time, haven't you? Aye. You know, I played with a few. I says, but you've ended up with him as your assistant manager. And I went, you, you could have picked through you through your phone book, you, you could have 10, 20, you know. You went for Alec, and I was having not taking the pass for Alec at the time, but see when you actually consider that, and he's been uh, probably three, four clubs, Blackpool. Uh, well, what, what happened was Alec said to me that uh, when they played against each other a lot, and um, him and Inso in the park, they were similar. Yeah. They wanted to win. They were winners. And um, he said uh, they, they, they never got on on the park. They were kicking each other and all that kind of thing. And they were shouting at each other and all that kind of thing. And then when Alec was transferred to Wolves, Paul Ince was there and they went, oh, no, no, you. Oh, at least you're playing the same team as me. And the two of them got on right. really well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they obviously had that career, you know, uh, together. Uh, but Alec's, Alec is a, a brilliant guy, as you know, and he's very passionate about life, about he had his troubles, which he was very honest coming out about, which was great. And he gets he gets stuck for that, by being so honest, um, from people that don't really matter, because he's got a great family, he's a great guy, and uh, I was absolutely delighted that he's uh, got the, the opportunity to come in and, and be involved in Rangers, and I hope the manager keeps like him and the... Um, you know, the rest of them on, really just because you need that Rangers head, uh, you know, in whatever capacity, because um, he, he deserves it, because he's he's worked hard. Um, every time I see a testimonial game or something like that, I see him pulling that shirt on, you know, <laughs> and I think. Oh, it, it was part of one of the, in modern times, one of the biggest uh, days in the career was, uh, in, sorry, the history of the club at that probably 20 year gap was helicopter Sunday. He's part of that. I know. Forever. Uh, he'll be forever. And, you know, there in the, the videos and stuff. No, he's a great guy. And uh, when I was reading it, I was having a chortle and I thought, I wonder if we might know this. We get sacked. Why well, did he? Yeah, that's um, I, because uh, I remember when he was going through the same at St. Mun and I thought the way he got treated there was a bit harsh. And he was, I know he was going through a bit of a hard time um, at St. Mun with the fans. And they were playing Dumbarton away. And me, Ginger, was a Dumbarton manager at the yeah. time with, with Durant. And I can't remember where I was this day. And it was a Saturday at five, I must have been there, maybe about six or seven. And me, Ginger, and Durant came into the district. And I said, We just got a day, we man. He says, None each. He says, None each. He says, None each. He says, I'll be you get my wee pal of sack in. He says, Can you know, at Dumbarton, the, the dugouts at the other side for yes, the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. He says, So we're, we're walking across. He says, And I can see the whole. St. Mun fan base all running towards the tunnel. They're all screwing you, shouting you, dirty orange bee. And you just like, I thought they were talking to me. <laughs> and it was Ali, and then that was him, uh, you know, and I think, it was, it, it, you know, maybe a wee bit early coming out of there as well. Um, similar to Dundee, maybe with a um, change of board. They time. should, I think, if when I look back on that, I think if Alec had stayed, I think if I'd have stayed, I think Dundee would have got promoted that season. Um, I don't think they'd have gone into administration because I, I was understanding, very understanding of the finances. It, it, but I, also, the board members were, you know, Bob Brannan uh, is a, a great guy. He was chief executive at Rangers. Um, knows the game, but for some reason... You know, himself and the other two directors decided to to make that change. Do you, do you think 
that thing you were telling us about the loan to the stadium, from the bank allowing you to write off basically a multi-million well, pound even, loan even, for half a million. You it think? Was, well, it was so even, even worse than that because there was another four million in an account. And they came out of administration and, and what I couldn't understand was why that debt was allowed to be parked. Because that was part of the whole thing, you know, um, of the debt. And, you know, the bank obviously didn't want to write it off. So what they did was they put it in two accounts, uh, one under the stadium and one, uh, the, they, they had an agreement. I saw that an agreement there, right? And it was for four million. And what that was, was should Dundee ever... Um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Seller player. Uh, over one million pounds, then the bank would get fifty percent of it. Wow. Uh, but this loan doesn't never it doesn't incur any interest and doesn't have to be repaid. Now, that's what the bank could say at that time. And, and you know, currently, if, if you were to say that, people banks would write off. But you know, the, the carnage of two thousand and eight, when you know, basically, banks were. I, I know a lot of business people who had very, very good businesses and, uh, you know, they maybe had £100,000 overdraft uh, and they were maybe at their limit. The bank would say, unless that's paid by a certain date, we're pulling the plug. And there was a lot of businesses went out. It was, it was ridiculous, to be perfectly honest, that was allowed to, to go on. There was a lot of good businesses went out of business because... Down to the mismanagement of the banks, more than the mismanagement of the particular uh, businesses. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd actually someone who worked, I knew someone that worked with the banks at that stage, and some of the stuff that was going on was just outrageous to be yeah, honest. Well. Ask you a, um, a question, a sort of fantasy football type question, right? I won the, I won the, the Euro Millions and we go and buy a club. We can't just afford the Rangers, right? So we go, I won down south, and I say, right, who do I know that can help me? Right, David. There's a blank piece of paper. Design the football club for me. Tell me what that looks like. Yeah, they give us you know as much chance of success as possible. Right. Well, what what you need is, as I said to you, it all has to be aligned. So you need a board, a board that set out a clear strategy. So we need to agree a plan and a timescale to deliver that plan. Um, so we agree that we speak to every area within the club. We speak to the, the football side at that stage, we speak to the fans, we speak to the staff, we get everyone involved. When I go into a company, the first thing I do is I have a hour meeting with every member of staff. 
and I pose them a couple of questions. Uh, what's a barrier to you achieving what you want to achieve? Um, and what's good? What's working? Uh, and, and what would you need to make things work? What do we need to do here? So I get all that, gather that information, and a lot of it comes down to communication, not understanding the clear plan. So you get a clear plan, set that up, get all the stakeholders, everyone to, you make them aware of that plan, you know, fans and all of them. Here's what we're laying out, what our plan is, and you get a buy-in for it. So everyone that's involved in the club from board to the football management to the staff to the fans know what the plan is and what the time scales on with that so you do that you also get a, a representative of the fans on board and on the board uh, someone that that um, understands the plan and understands what what uh, the the fans have to do to make that plan work and as a very good communicator uh, because one of the things is communicating that where you are along the line of the plan, and then what you do is you 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 look at your finances and see right well what can we afford here to pay out in, in um, wages for the, the players, and then what you do is you get if you've got a good manager that you, you you're behind that's great if you decide that it's needing a change you, you get a change but what you do is you get someone in who. Um, understands the business side as well as the, the football side and they can they can link the two and what you do is say right okay look, how are we going to play what's your style of play and, and a lot of people say well you're interfering no you're no what you're doing is you're understanding exactly what the manager's requirements are um you get all that down and then what you do is at clubs that succeed what they do is they uh, have a style of play and then what they do is they bring in the players to fit that style of play. There's a lot of teams, as you probably see, where they, they have a style of play and what they do is they say, let's sign that one because he scored 20 goals or he's he's been a great defender. They might not fit into the style of play. So what you have to do is that understanding with the manager. We bring in players to fit the style of play that you play. Um, and you basically implement that, but you communicate on a regular basis of where you are within a club. Um, and also you got a scouting system and you got a really good scouting system. And um, I'm part of a, a Rangers WhatsApp group uh, of players that played in the 80s. Uh, and there's some people in there from around the world that um, very, very good football people understand the game, have been managers and coaches, Colin Miller in, in Canada. In, in America, Bobby Williamson in Africa, Stuart Minot in Australia. And we talk regularly about players and all of those three and others, Big Nizzy in Spain, uh, they've spoken about players and said, by the way, the club should buy, Rangers should buy this player. Uh, I remember Bobby Williamson telling me that he'd written to the club to say there was a player in Africa uh, that I think was could have got for five hundred thousand, and he says he's one of the best strikers I've seen in the game. Now Bobby knows the game inside out, and uh, I think he sent something in to the club to say I think you should have a look at him, but it, it didn't happen. And the guy signed for a, a Bundesliga team, and I think um, 
a premiership club in England's trying to buy him for 20, 30 million at the moment. So that happens. So you need to get a network of people yeah. that, that, that understand football and understand players that will come into that system. So that it's relatively easy to set that up. But see, once you've got the plan, you need to stick to it. Uh, but, you know, and if you have to deviate for some reason, you need to in, in advise and communicate with every stakeholder and say, um, this is, we're changing this strategy and the way we're going, and here's the reasons why. And people buy into that. It's about buy-in all the time. And do you think in the modern game, rather than just having the, the manager alongside a scouting department, recruitment department, whatever that looks like, and whatever you want to call it. Do we need a technical director stroke, uh, director of football, and not, not not a director of football in terms of dealing with the business side, but you know, dealing with the, the planning for recruitment, the plan, you know, that guy's got two years left in his contract, we'll probably need to get rid of him in a year. Do we, is that a necessity at top clubs these days? Well, I think top clubs have gone that way. I think because... Um, Chief executives maybe don't have that uh, that knowledge, uh, so they need to bounce things off, you know, a technical director or a director of football. Because I think the thing is, um, you know, you're right. It's about managing players' contracts. You know, if you look, um, I don't want to keep reverting back to Rangers, but if you look at uh, Morelis and Kent, yeah. you know, see part of the thing, even at, you know the clubs I've been at, what I've done is always said, right, well, somebody's come out of contract, you offer them an extension, and if they don't want an they extension, go. they go, because you, you maximise the money. That happened with me, where there was a boy, Kevin McDonald, played for Scotland. Kevin was a great player, and um, I spoke to him at Dundee, I spoke to him and his agent and said, look, why don't you sign an extension? Because we wanted to protect the club. Uh, and him and his agent says, no, I'm not signing a contract. So what I did was I said, right, okay, well, um, I'm going to move you on. And what I did was sold them for uh, a big, big fee for Dundee, half a million pounds to, to Burnley. Same thing happened at, um, at Kilmarnock with players, you know, moving them on because they don't want to sign an extension because they're just going to run down their contract. And what I've seen is like clubs when players are in the final year of running down their contract, they don't, get, they don't give you it. It's something that I can't stand buzzwords, right? When I manage people, I try and be a straight talker and, 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 and we'd have goals, we'd have, uh, majority of my managing time is sales teams. And our target's over there somewhere, and I'll run to that. If you can run with me, that's great. See if you even jog with me, that's all right. See if you walk the other way, we can just finish. No, right? Know. That was my type of management, and I can't even bother with buzzwords. And it's, 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 trying to remember the recruitment, some shitey buzzword we heard at Rangers for years. And then a Kent and Morales, Morales leave for zero. Now, I know there was 29, £30,000 million pound worth of bids for those two. Not so long ago, and you go, um, it's just buzzwords. It means nothing. And if you're saying if you've got a plan, you stick to the plan. But we see a lot of faffing about. And we, we, what we say is we say the buzzwords and we, we call this the plan today because it suits today's agenda. But tomorrow... So we tell everybody we've got these recruitment strategies. We need a five-year plan. I think football club. So we tell everybody we're doing these um, recruitment strategies and you know, the way we're going to manage our squad. And it does involve going out and finding good gems that we can resell for big profits. And then you go, ah, but Bassey. Well, that's right. But we did. We got lucky with Bassey. We got lucky with Patterson. 
there was another two that that's if that's your strategy that's your strategy and i mean i saw those two in the last year where there were a shadow of the players that we'd seen previously and then they walk out of the club for zero you go it was, it was just a buzzword no, well i think the thing is like is that's irrespective of much money you've got and i know one of the things that the Rangers directors have done is they've put their money in their mouth is they've, they've put money investment yeah. in the club but I think that 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 probably looking at those two players even in getting into their last year of their contract I reckon you'd get 15 20 million for, for the two of them mm -hmm. um you know whatever that you know broke down for each player I don't know but there was certainly uh I know at the time you could have done that now getting that kind of money into to Rangers would be significant um because no club irrespective they can can afford to you know see money walking out the door and that's what happened really yeah. um so i don't know how that happened i don't know anything about it i think it's just bad planning and no sticking to you know saying that's what we're going to do no doing it but see there was one thing i do take exception to to a certain degree is but they've put money in every rangers director that's put money in is getting their money back in two ways either cheap shares because we were told that they were worth 40 pence a year ago when an American wanted to buy some. And when they put their loans in or put the money in, they're getting, they're getting no, given shares at 25 know, pence. I don't know what the, the, the financials behind it is, but I'm just saying, you I, know, no, I know, got people I, on the board, sometimes around the boardroom, they have to be asked, to look, we need to put some money I, in here. And they do it. If I had money and somebody said to me, if we should put half a million in and we'll give you Rangers shares at 25 pence right now. I'd do it in a minute. If I had half a million to give Rangers and somebody says, we'll pay you back at 6% interest right now, I'd have it in a minute. So the Rangers board are good at putting money in, but every penny they put in, they're getting back either cheap shares or with interest nowadays. The Rangers fans every year put in more money with the season tickets alone and don't get anything back by the enjoyment of what a football club and I do appreciate I'm not saying I don't appreciate what people do because if they don't put the money in we might not have existed in that since 2012 but I've always got that caveat with it we'll see it at Dundee um Dundee were saved by D for life yeah uh, and they restructured the club and gave D for life 26 percent yeah um and you know any um arrangements you know work across yeah. every member of the board so D for life were there 26 percent and without them, the club would never have survived. Um, I don't know what happened at the second um, sort of administration, but I think D for Life, I don't think they've got the shares that they've got. They had originally them. But, but, you know, I think the thing is, like, um, I think there's a, you know, I think clubs uh, can ill afford to um, ignore their fans. Yeah, I've got uh, I think they have to get them on board and embrace it. And for a France perspective, though, I think that, you know, I don't know how many different associations there are at Rangers with the fans group, but see if there was one focus, uh, I think that would be a better idea for me. Yeah, I could, could bore you to deal. We could do an hour on that alone, but that's what the club wanted when they brought in Club 1872. They wanted to say, rather than speak to this and that, you'll have a one-stop shop, and that was to become a multifaceted organisation. And it was great, and it worked well, until Club 1872 started asking some serious questions. Yeah. And the club stopped talking to them. Right. They had a 6% shareholder, major shareholder, and they stopped talking to them. And now what the club's doing currently, right now, is they're going to create a fan board Guess who picks the fan board? Club. The club. Aye. And you go, so listen, I love Rangers as much as the next guy and more than, than, than some. 
And I think, and this is something I actually spoke to one of your directors about a year ago, just before he blocked my phone number. And I said, see when guys ask questions or want clarity and transparency, it's not because they hate you. It's actually up through a passion. And I think football fans in general, the default setting of a football fan, and that's probably why so many shysters take this out of football clubs, default setting for a fan is you want to believe everything that's good. That's somebody says, you want to ignore what's bad. So if somebody with big Yorkshire hands, for example, comes along and tells you he's going to get his back in the Premier, uh, the Premier League quick, then the Champions League and all this, people go, I want to believe him. So then somebody else comes along and says, well, he's a thieving shite. Nobody wants to listen to him. So it's very easy for people with the wrong... Um, well, uh, I think uh, any club has to be transparent. Everything yeah. has to be transparent because you've got nothing to hide, really. Yeah. You've got nothing to hide. So? Um, and... I think that's the only way it works. And so going back to the thing about creating a yeah, football club. A blank piece of paper. Transparency is the biggest yeah, thing. And, and, so. and, and without transparency, it won't work because all you're doing is it's a house of cards. It'll eventually collapse um, because of whatever happens in the future. So, but it's a great game, football. But I think the thing is like, um, it's a simple game that's complicated that people compliment and they put layers in and all that kind of thing. Just make it slim, get the, the, the stakeholders involved, communicate with them, be transparent. That's the way it's... I, I've never met John Bennett, um, but I know someone uh, I trust and respect, and he knows him very well, and he tells me he's a, he's a wonderful guy yeah. and he wants the best for the club. So, yeah. um, and and that would be... That's, that's great. Um, so I'm sure... Uh, you know, if uh, John Bennett believes that that in this in a model that's open and transparent, it will happen. I think that I just uh, commented somebody about a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the fact that was somebody just recently left the club, and I uh, and I said, see the guys that we've got involved in our chairman and the board. I don't think any of them are not successful chosen field and the reason I don't even need to go and look is the amount of money they've been able to put in their back pocket and put on the table so you must be good at what you do or you wouldn't be in that position the only thing I feel we've got a problem with is their chosen field they're successful and then none of it's football and we just need some proper football well, people in to I help a guide that a lot I stick um, do some work for PLZ Soccer yeah. and um, I was asked when Michael Peel went about how they should recruit, and I'd, I'd, and you know, I said that they should get someone as a consultant and to to help the board make the right decisions from a football perspective. Yeah. Because what I meant with that, and I suggested Graham Soonis, and and, and and it happened, but um, not because of what I said it, but I think it was, they were probably thinking about it the same way. But what I meant with that was, um, see, when you've got managers that you're interviewing right um see if you don't understand from a football perspective what they should be doing or indeed what is important Foot managers or anyone could tell you ah this is what I've, I've done this is what i'm doing this is the way i operate this is what my plans are going forward this is a uh, you know this is how it's going to operate and this is what i'm going to achieve now that could be correct but it might indeed be quite a hollow thing. But see if you're a guy that understands football or a woman that understands football, 
and you ask the relevant football questions, you know straight away whether they're going to deliver it. And that's what I meant. You know, get somebody in that can ask the question. If somebody says to you, "Yep, um, I'm going to organise right your scouting system," what do you? How do you see your scouting system operate? And they, they tell you exactly. Here's what I've done in the past. Here's the success. Is done it. A football guy will understand whether that can be achieved. Well, you said that, <laughs> not me. But um, I think that. You know that that was what I meant with it because yeah. with respect to you know, the board and CEO, very good business people, but they may don't know what the, the football questions is. And and um, to their credit, they got Graham involved, and 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 I'm sure he helped in a, a lot of ways. And and you know, uh, it worked well. We've got hopefully. a manager. We've got a manager. <laughs> aye. Hopefully, right. Well, look, David, it's, it's been a fascinating tours. Just flies in, doesn't it? Um, can I thank you enough for your, your time uh, today in doing this? Uh, and what I try and achieve with these is find out what's behind the character that we've known, you know, for 40 years um, through your playing career and your time in, in the football. And I think we've, we've succeeded in that somewhat today. Some of the stories and insights you've given has been incredible. Um, but just before we finish, can I ask you just a couple of quick fire questions yeah. off the top of your head? Best team you played against? Um, probably uh, Benfica. Wow. When was that? It was when I was at Arsenal. Is that right? Is uh, it, was yeah. that out there? Or? No, it was at, at, uh, in London. So. Wow. Um, Big club. I took, I, took a, I chartered a plane at the end of COVID. I took 120 kids out there for a day. I took them to their, 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 their stadium and their, their, their training facility and then went back out. Six months later, for a four-day trip, we're under 14s or 15s at the time. What a club! That's a proper football club. Well, they, what they, uh, they had a good relationship with Arsenal, and they just it was like closed door thing. Yeah. So what they did was they just came across, played their their, their um, you know first team, and it was a great experience because it was actually myself and all these guys that spoken about played against them. We played they had a show pitch, and we played in that, and it was just it was it was all part of your education. Best player you played with? Uh, Davy Cooper, definitely, definitely Davy Cooper. I um, also played with Liam Brady, yeah. who was an incredible player. Um, but I played against Liam Brady uh, when uh, Rangers beat Inter Milan three one, and I was basically up against him. Um, and he never got kicked, to be honest, <laughs> because I knew. See the thing is, like if you know how people play, you can you can actually stop them playing that way. And that just just to you know, because Liam uh, did was he played within a twelve yard area, and if you can cut off the ball to him or you put him under pressure, he'll still do you you know occasions. But um, with playing with him for four years, I knew I knew his first I knew what his first touch was. So I would try and either stop that ball getting to him or get a second ball. But he was a great player as well. But David Cooper definitely. Right. Who was your toughest opponent you came across? Um, probably Peter Weir, I would imagine, because I think uh, it took me a long time to get to know his game. Um, when I was at Arsenal, um, Pat Rice helped me out enough a lot uh, on how to play as a right back, how to defend. Uh, and I played against George Best as well. Wow. Um, 
But Pat said to me, said, said, who's your favourite player? I says, George Best at that time, because he was just amazing. Um, and he said, oh, I played against Best, as you know, and he's in the Northern Ireland side with me. He said, um, I'll tell you how to play him. And I was like, oh, right, OK. So we used to go into the Highbury pitch after training and uh, used to get a ball. And what Pat used to say was, watch, he moves his body, but the ball doesn't move. So keep your eye on the ball and you'll get it. Uh, and I remember Cook was the same when I played against him when I was at Thistle. Um, Cook moved his body, but the ball stood still. And he'd, put his, he'd do a wee feint and players would go off balance and then he'd take that. And he said to me, uh, Coop, after the first game, he says, I need to keep my eye on you. Because I took the ball from a few times. He was very gracious. And uh, uh, and that, that, that was what it was. But um, George Best was the same. Incredible. Incredible player. What was the biggest game you've ever you ever played on in your career? Um, Crowd-wise, I played in front of 100,000 in Iran <laughs> for Arsenal against... Uh, Iran in a, a tournament, right? Um, and uh, so biggest game I think for was obviously for Rangers. I think we played in a lot of big Europeans. We played Porto, and there was eighty odd thousand there. Um, so you know, big games, uh, big atmosphere. But the, interestingly, uh, when you play on a regular basis in front of big crowds you don't it's just a, a buzz you don't hear anything although um i need to admit this i played in the scottish cup final against aberdeen uh and the rangers fans you know were at their usual end and there was a break and play and i looked up to the rangers end and out of, i don't know it's probably forty thousand rangers fans I saw a guy that was in my class at school. No way. <laughs> called Asthma. That's <laughs> what about 80 or mid 80s? 83, I think. And oh. I looked up and it was just, it was the most strangest thing ever. So I'm looking up at the Rangers end and I'm thinking, oh, fans are great again. And then I see, oh, it's no, is it? My sight was a lot better <laughs> those days. It was Asthma. That's it. I sat beside in school. I knew him. And I just was. And have you seen him since? No. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if he knows that bit of fame that he's got that he's never knew. So just one one last question, David. Again, can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been super conversation and journey into the, the life of, of you. Um, if you could rewind it back to being that kid playing in the 50 pitches and the, the race course at Paisley uh, and, and stuff and do it all again, would you change any of it? Yep, I would. I would have changed it. Well, this is the thing, is, and again, writing this book has got me to a place where I'm, I'm very comfortable with my decisions because I understand them now. But uh, if I hadn't gone to Arsenal and I'd gone to Ipswich, um, would I have played for Rangers? You know, uh, if I didn't walk away from Arsenal, would I have played with Rangers? If I hadn't had my kidney removed, would I have played for Rangers? Um, you know, and I think the thing is, like, um, as you get older, you know, people say, oh, that's Dave McKinn that used to play for Rangers. They wouldn't say, oh, there's Dave McKinn that played with Everton and Ipswich, uh, <laughs> if you uh, know what I mean. Uh, so I, I wouldn't change anything. I, uh, I I do, what I do now is, like, um, 
I speak to players that I know, young players who are maybe um, going through an injury, um, time in their life. There's uh, a couple of players that I'm speaking to at the moment um, who've got kind of, you know, longer term injuries that they've battled through and they're coming back to. So I phone them up uh, periodically and say, how are you doing in your rehab? Because it's a lonely place. It's a lonely place. Um, and see, when you're out injured, it's very difficult for to feel part of it. So that's what I do. And I think, I think I'd like to mentor a lot, a lot of young players about, about their game and, and, and you know, particularly when they go through injuries, about how they would, you know, how, what they need to think of, what they need to concentrate on. Because uh, ultimately, see, when you get through a long period of injury, you come out the other end and see when you start playing again, you don't think of that, that term you went through, but as you're living it and breathing it, you have to keep positive. You need to ensure that you've, uh, you don't lose focus. You don't get too depressed, too down, because if you work hard enough to try and get back, you ultimately get back. I'll tell you a story lastly about Rangers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's spoke about it in my book, but it was never discussed at the time. But um, I, when Jock Wallace came, um, we played against Aberdeen. It seems to be Aberdeen, <laughs> things are. But we played against Aberdeen and we stayed at a hotel and I got uh, hepatitis A, believe it or not. And uh, I was out for six months. And what the club didn't do, because it was it was just at the tail end of the AIDS and all that kind of stuff, and hepatitis, you know, a lot of the drugs things, and add hepatitis A, um, which is going to have to do with drugs or anything. It's just it's a, a, a liver illness, and it was caused by fruit that I had at a hotel in Aberdeen because there was an outbreak, and I think forty people got it. I should have claimed in those days for loss of earnings, but I was out for six months, and. Um, the club, I was basically just told to go home for six months uh, and no come near the club. Um, not because of the stigma around, uh, around AIDS. There was a lot of stigma around AIDS and hepatitis at that time. But it was simply because that um, uh, I needed a time to recover. I lost a lot of weight, and, and, but I was almost isolated. But every Saturday after the game, Jock Wallace would phone me at the house. Because remember, there's no mobiles. No. He'd phoned me at the house and he said, uh, how are you doing, Skippy? What did you do the day? I said, oh, just shuffled a bit and ate rice because I was eating rice. That's all I could eat. Couldn't eat any fats because my liver had to repair. And he said, right, OK, well, let me tell you about the day's game. And he would talk about the game, how we played, who was who played well, who didn't play well. And I would ask him questions about the game and all that kind of thing. And, and, and he phoned me for six months Every Saturday and wet, if there was a Wednesday game, he'd phone me after that. So, I mean, that that takes a, a certain human being to do that because I was away from the club. I was not I was not near the club and, and I'd lost almost contact with it. Uh, but Jock Wallace did that for me and, and you know, what a man he was. Oh, fair play, I'm fair play. Oh, can I ask you one more question then? That'll lead on to uh, best manager that you had in your career. John Gregg for me. Yeah. Um, not just because he signed us, but he um, epitomised what the club was yeah. about. 
he set unbelievable standards. Um, Tommy McLean was a great foil for him as, as, as a coach. The two of them worked really, really well. Um, and it was a sad day when he was sacked because I think there was a lot of knives out for him in the boardroom. Uh, and I think, given his status, I think he should have been allowed to be the manager long, uh, for a longer time. I actually saw him coming down the stairs. We came in from the Albion the training. And he was coming down the stairs and he just basically, I think he'd been forced to resign and he resigned and he was upset. And to see somebody you'd idolised and respected as a manager and as a player come down in tears and the, the stairway at Ibrox was, was very poignant for me. Uh, and it gave me a big lesson that in football that there's no loyalty. No. No, if you could be <laughs> player captain, lifted the best, uh, you know, the biggest ever victory in the club's get, history. He should have been given a lot more time, I think, and also a bit more resources to, because we let we let we started even the team he was rebuilding, it started to disappear. Big John McClelland, who yeah. was such a great player in the back, Watford. was sold to Watford. Jim Bett was sold back to Lochran. Did he not go? Yeah, Aberdeen was he went to Lochran back to Lochran. Ah. He was at Lochran, came to Rangers. And then was transferred back to Locher and, and he was he was a great player. Yep. Um start given I think the manager the funding at that time. But I think the as I say, there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes. I thought the decision was already made to, to get him at the door. And that was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing for me to see as a player, but also as a fan, it was a terrible thing. And John Gregg, as you know, is one of the most genuine guys you'll ever meet in your life. Um brilliant, brilliant man. One of my early memories of Watching Rangers was uh, coming out. We used to come out of the main stand, turn right, walk past the front door, and go over to Albion to when you had a season ticket, you could park in there at the time when it still had the training ground over there. And um, I just remember Greg Moscow or his chance and sat Greg, and I was like, I didn't know too much about him, but you know, I was brought up in all the stories with Barcelona and you know, the captain and stuff. And I just thought, that's a bit weird. And was, was this maybe one of the first? Times where fans influenced the board, and that's maybe what I, I think. Them. I think maybe I think that you're yeah, maybe right, but I think the thing is, like, you know, I don't think there was an investment in the team that, that should have been, um, because you know the club was making a lot of money. I remember um, we played Inter Milan here uh, at Ibrox, and uh, basically. It was reported that the club were making something like, I think it was something like 700,000 for the game. Because what they'd done was they'd sold the rights to Italian TV. It wasn't on Scottish TV at that time. Because the, the highlights are uh, basically uh, on YouTube and it's REI. So mm. they'd sold the rights to the game for a significant amount of money. And, and if you notice, if you watch that game, um, all the advertising are all blocked yeah. off yeah. because they put in their own. Right. So the, the club made a phenomenal amount of money. And remember, um, the players didn't earn a lot of money uh, in those days. Um, so therefore, the club was, was sitting in a lot of money. At the time. And I think it could have been better invested by in supporting John Gregg. That was my view. Uh, you know, and who knows what would happen because he was he was a really good manager, very very good manager very conscientious, knew the club inside out, and see, you know, obviously when, when soon, soon as come in, the whole thing changed. 
Uh, but even Jock Wallace wasn't supported a lot during that time. Um, and, you know, but, you know, I think that uh, when people look back in those days and they may think, oh, it's down to the manager, it's down to the players, but they don't know what else is going on behind the right. scenes. So, well, um, great, great Thanks, couple of hours, David. Um, just before I go, just need to thank again our sponsor for this episode, Impact Glasgow Building Solutions, and just thank you for a splendid, uh, splendid couple of hours and uh, some great well, remember stories. Remember, if there's any supporters' clubs out there that want to maybe make come along for a night yeah. to talk about football, and maybe bring some guests, uh, if they contact yourself, yeah, that'd be I'm great. You can, can do that. Listen, so, thanks absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very much, it. David. Great. great. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.